Welcome to the 37 Signals podcast. We're doing a roundtable with three of our programmers here at 37 Signals. Uh, who are you guys? I'm Jeff Hardy. I'm Jameis Buck. And I'm Jeremy Kemper. And we're sitting at our new offices in Chicago. What do you guys think so far? Loving it. It's pretty awesome. So we got a specific room for recording audio and podcasts, and we're using that. Uh, and we're going to answer reader questions that you guys posted at Signal versus Noise. So why don't we uh, get started? A uh, question from Maximilian Sleziak. Tell us more about you. Who are you? Where did you work before 37 Signals, and how did you get involved into 37 Signals? I'll start. Um, this is Jameis. I was originally working at Brigham Young University, um, and I met David at the 2004 RubyConf when he was just introducing Rails, and I'd been working on the SQLite 3 Ruby Jam. He was looking at the time to try and bundle a database with Rails, um, and so we talked, and I wrote the first adapter for the SQLite stuff for Rails. He liked what he saw, and uh, he and Jason flew me out to the building of Basecamp in February of the next year and made me an offer, and I've been working here ever since. Similar path, meeting David through Rails, um, got involved with a couple of Rails ventures and ended up here at 37 Signals. I did web, web stuff before then, so it was a, a pleasure to discover Rails and to discover a company like 37 Signals where uh, we can work this way. Yeah, my story is pretty similar to I started a company a long time ago just doing web design and all of our customers needed, you know, web apps, web programming done and I didn't know how to do it. So I went to the bookstore and bought some books and taught myself Perl and uh, that's how I got into <coughs> programming. Then I did, when Rails came out, I did Rails consulting for a while and eventually came to the mothership of Rails <laughs> companies. <laughs> All right, Jacob Banda Storch asks, what do you use for version control? How do you have testing deployment set up? Uh, we use Git. So we used Subversion for a long, long time, and we were pretty happy with it. Um, then we took the plunge at 37 Signals to Git. I think it was... Yeah, that. might have been through me. But. Yeah, but it's been a great change going from something that seemed like it was plenty. Subversion just works. Um, <coughs> but something like Git, uh, you don't really realize what the features will do for you until you're using it. The flexibility that gives you... Um, it's hard to quantify when you when you don't know that it's that certain things are possible. The first thing we really noticed moving from Subversion to Git was the ease of branching. That was the thing that really sold us initially. But like Jeremy said, there's a lot of a lot that you notice as you start using it that you just never never noticed before. And Dan wants to know what does your deployment process look like? Cap production deploy. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's Capistrano, which Jameis wrote, and yeah, it's probably pretty much like what every other Rails developer is doing. We do have a staging environment that we deploy for for larger um, changes. For small, easy bug fixes, we'll often deploy straight to production, but for the larger things, we'll deploy to staging and test and then move that into production, so... We don't have a fixed process, so we have kind of a checklist for ensuring, especially that a change um, doesn't break something inadvertently. 
So rather than going through a, a pre-deploy process, we'll deploy and then watch and make sure that nothing bad happened after the fact. So it keeps the deploy process pretty lightweight. And it's not uncommon to deploy many times a day. A normal day can see like upwards of 10 deploys across all apps. Yeah, that's one really nice thing about having everything super automated. You can just deploy and it's trouble free. Like we can deploy in the middle of the day and it's not a big deal. Rupert wants to know, how do you decide which new technology you use and what not to use? Uh, that's a tough one. I mean, it's a value judgment. If you go to the supermarket and see a fruit that's unfamiliar to you, then what are you going to do? And if you're feeling interested and, like, you're up for something, you can give it a shot and just see how it feels. If and you hear enough like people talking about it, then you're more likely to want to try it out. And yeah. yeah. Well, it's an example of that, right? You know, we weren't using it, and we, you know, you start using it for your own stuff, and then eventually we were like... This looks like it would be a good fit, good thing to replace subversion. And mm -hmm. it's sort of, maybe it's that it has to prove itself. Yeah. And once it does, yeah. you know, it's a pretty easy decision to make. We don't usually jump on the brand new thing the first time we hear about it. Um, usually one of us will play with it on the side a little bit and either come back with a recommendation for or against. I think Redis is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. Redis is a persistent key value store that... Um, got a lot of talk, and so there's a lot of buzz about it, and uh, teasing out the reality from the buzz, it turns out all the buzz was really true. It's a really sweet tool, um, but it took us experimenting with it and really getting a sense for, like, what is this really beyond, you know, a feature list, so we could see what it, how it would work in our products. Julian wants to know, what testing frameworks and processes do you use? I love this question because people ask it fairly often. We use TestUnit right out of the uh, Ruby standard library. Um, we'll decorate it a bit with uh, like mocking frameworks like Mocha, um, and we use the testing extensions that Rails provides, but we don't really go into Cucumber. Um, yeah, we're pretty old school in that yeah. respect. Right? We would like to experiment with some with frameworks like Selenium and some of that, um, but we haven't gotten there yet. I think what Jameis started with, uh, it's really interesting that it's such a common question, and testing frameworks as opposed to many other tool choices you could make. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. It might be because uh, it's such an aesthetic choice and also such an unimportant choice. And ultimately, it's that you're testing it all, so you have an idea of what your software is supposed to do and that you're writing it out so you can programmatically test it. And so it becomes a place that's just primed for bike shedding. Like, there are so many different possibilities, and it's such a programmer-friendly kind of thing to work on that there are tons of different libraries scratching everybody's individual aesthetic itch. And it becomes a question of whether you like periwinkle blue versus cornflower blue. And in, in the end, it's your testing. HMart asks, what apps have you migrated to Rails 3 already? Can you share tech details lessons about it? We haven't migrated any apps, but we've built new apps on Rails 3. So all of our big paying apps are still Rails 2, 3x. Um, our answers board is Rails 3. Our um, Launchpad is Rails 3, isn't it? No. 
It is converted though. It's so oh, actually, yeah. we've we've migrated some things, but we haven't launched them. Okay. So Launchpad, which is the main main screen you go to for your thirty seven signals ID, um, is converted to Rails three, but we haven't deployed it for one reason or another. We did a major effort converting Basecamp. And we started early in the uh, before the Rails 3 beta to kind of prove out where we'd arrived with Rails 3 to see whether Rails was still something that felt right. I mean, Basecamp is the ultimate test for us. It's been around since before Rails. So <coughs> if Basecamp feels good on that version of Rails and you can deploy it, the whole thing works, then we know we're on the right track. And uh, that exposed a lot of issues with, with Rails uh, going into the beta and thankfully helped polish it up. Um, but Basecamp's pretty big, and there's a lot of old stuff in it, so uh, it's not deployable yet. It's going to take a bit of work to fix up old things that um, are tied to specific internal APIs and all the things you're not supposed to do, but everybody does a little bit. Jake asks, how do you balance maintenance and utilities versus working on new strategic things? A lot of that is taken care of by the, the system we implemented this year, or late last year, with the teams. Uh, every two months, um, the programmers and the designers kind of get shuffled like cards and dealt into new teams. So we get to, you know, um, the last month and a half I've been on support, so I've been dealing a lot with the maintenance side of it. Um, but before that, I was working on, fe you know, new features and, and so forth. And so we kind of just uh, all take turns on about a two-month cycle. Part of, the, part of the reason for doing this cycle is some frustration that grew, uh, especially last year, where uh, quite a few of us, actually all three of us here, were working on some big internal infrastructure-type work. And <coughs> it's difficult when you know, we're doing infrastructure work and we're very much a product development company. And so feeling that push and pull of where our attention lies, especially when we're working for months on internal stuff, and feeling pressure to, we want to be doing product development. That's like the whole point of 37 Signals. Um, so I, th I feel like teams are a way of addressing that, of, of kind of time slicing. Mm -hmm. uh, Tommy asks, what type of development process do you use? Is it something very formal that's heavily documented, or is it more informal? Very informal. <laughs> <laughs> no formalities. Calling it a process is generous. <laughs> But it's driven by the culture. Like there's, we're all sort of the same way. Um, so there's a sort of an, I guess there's an unwritten process. If anywhere yeah. any of us were to use a formal process, that would be weird. It would stand <laughs> out. Yeah. You know. Yeah, there are th certain patterns to the way you do things, and uh, if you describe a pattern and it becomes, uh, or if you try to ascribe that pattern to how other people should be working, it seems weird and it seems formalized because it's not natural. But if somebody were to come in as a software anthropologist and look at how we were working, I'm sure that they could derive some patterns. Is there such a thing as a software They're anthropologist? <laughs> job opening. <laughs> Dave Tolzma asks, what tools do you use? Computers. <laughs> <laughs> no, our tool set is almost, I mean, by tools, we all use uh, Macs. We, you know, our environments are probably almost identical, except we all, I use TextMate as a text editor. You guys use Vim. Yeah, it's not that exciting. We use Git. Um, I've, I've been using Nginx lately for local development, for running the stuff, and Passenger. Um, 
don't know how you guys run the apps locally. I use Passenger. It's Passenger. Um, Otherwise, I mean, my my favorite tool and the one that's most important to me is Vim. I'm living in a text editor, like getting things done. It's just a way of navigating and moving around the code you're working on. So I'm, the other tools are just kind of out of necessity. You have to be able to do other stuff. Mm -hmm. Kang Chen asks, do you guys do any A-B testing? If so, what do you use to help you decide whether something is valuable to the company? We've done some A-B testing on the marketing side, which doesn't it's not directly, it doesn't impact the programmers directly. Um, the closest I've come to actually doing some A-B testing is on the sign-up page, which actually did require some changes to our sign-up code underneath. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, A-B testing, it showed us one was more effective than the other, and so we went with it. But um, the challenge from a programmer point of view is trying to figure out how to make Rails work nicely with a, you know, what percentage of the time do you show one view versus the other? Generally, we don't A-B test big decisions. Uh, and we'll just pull the trigger and we'll just go with it. We've, we've considered it several times for certain features where we're internally kind of wondering whether weather is the best idea. And that's a way of, kind of pushing off that decision making pushing it off to let's A-B test it or let's, let's do or let's support both code paths. Let's grandfather in certain people doing things one way and new people doing things another way. Um, and it's really avoiding that decision. And it's expensive. Like you said, you have to maintain multiple code paths. And so unless, unless there's a lot to be gained from it, there's really not a lot of point in doing it. Ryan asks, in a Rails app, do you put modularized code in live, or do you generally keep those abstractions, modules, and vendor plugins? What indicators do you use to determine if it's plugin-worthy, so to speak? And also, what plugins do you use that 37signals was not responsible for writing, if any? Um, first things first, I guess. We don't use live very much anymore. We used to use it more. Um, seems like more and more yeah. we've started using um, app concerns for putting modules and so forth in there, and and then plugins for the the code that doesn't really fit there. There is kind of a path that we'll, we'll see um, a bit of code follow as it becomes extracted extracted from an app. Um, if we abstract it a little bit, it would be something that would usually be a concern that would live in that app. Um, if we find we need to use it in other apps, we'll pull that into a plugin. Uh, but otherwise, it's a fairly natural <coughs> progression. Like if you need to use it in just the app um, in multiple places, you'd abstract it and put it in put it in a concern. Sometimes you'd use lib um, if it were a standalone kind of object rather than decorating some existing object. Um, but there's no hard and fast rules. Things code just kind of grows up and ends up where it ought to belong. Pet. You got more? I say as far as plugins, we have oh, a yeah. in-house. We to have think. a lot of, input. and most of our plugins are things that we've extracted out of the apps. So when all the apps have something in common, you know, that makes its way into a plugin. There aren't a lot of other <coughs> plugins that we use that we didn't write, and it's not really intentional. Like we're going out of our way to not use other people's stuff. It's just usually we already have some abstraction. Um, yeah. Well, a bunch our apps are pretty old now too, and so a lot right. of the stuff we did, it, 
predates what and there was there was no other choice at the mm-hmm. time. Right. So it's something uh, I noticed. Uh, Pratik implemented most of uh, Sortfolio, and that was built from scratch. Um, and <coughs> we had the full realm of plugins and existing tools to choose from, and we reused a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And so starting from scratch, it was a lot easier to make those choices. Let's just use this, use this, use this, just take them off the shelf. And so seeing that kind of fresh look at what we could use and couldn't use, I think most of us having worked on the older apps, we'd more naturally reach for our own internal tools rather than even looking at what's in those other toolboxes. Patrick Schmid asks, how do you decide what feature for which product to improve, implement next? We've got a list. <laughs> yeah. Um, whenever someone is dissatisfied, like one of us is dissatisfied with a product, we kind of throw it on a list somewhere. And then when the teams get shaken up, um, the first thing we do as a new team is sit down and look at the lists and say, okay, what do we want to work on? And it's it's guided some by like David and Jason and Ryan kind of have, they, they'll prioritize things a little bit. Right. Um, so they'll do some curating. And generally, things will will be bubbling up, like mm-hmm. especially new product development, new features we want to work on. Um, somebody will champion them. I think for things that are annoying people, it's a little bit more difficult to prioritize because they're smaller chunks of work, and so it's you have to kind of pack multiple things into a two-week iteration, and it becomes more difficult. You have to then you just make the choice. This iteration is going to be about cleaning things up in this application, different pain points that we've accumulated over the past month or so. Yeah, time boxing is a whole other topic. It's kind of hard to figure out sometimes what the scope of some of this is, but we're getting better at it. But otherwise, that decision-making is pretty much decentralized. Things just kind of bubble up, and there's we don't have an internal process or um, ticket system for making those decisions. Is it easy to get consensus on that, or is there ever pushback in between the members of the group? Never has been no. in my experience. I mean, usually we're all on the same page. If it, we sort of have a general sense that something needs doing, and like Jeremy said, it just it bubbles up to the top and it gets grabbed. And if someone is really passionate about one feature that they want to work on, the rest of us are usually fine with it. It's not like you have two big ideas that are conflicting. Yeah, that's actually kind of a blessing and having some passionate idea floating out there because it's it's much easier to run with that. And if you have just a bunch of ideas, they're just floating out there and it's hard to decide what really matters. Uh, But that passion attached to it makes the decision a lot easier. All right, great. We've got more questions, but uh, why don't we continue that on the next episode of the podcast. Uh, If you want, you can go to 37signals.com slash podcast. We'll post related links to this episode. Uh, We also post transcripts, and you can find all the previous episodes there. So we'll be back next time with more questions for the programming team.